You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Christians today are culturally lonely. Now, I'm sharing this because I'm worried about us as a church. I'm worried about believers. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was lonely when he walked on planet Earth. So the idea that we're culturally lonely is nothing new. The Bible says that Jesus Christ had nowhere to lay his head. If you want a theology of that, you could go to Philippians chapter 2. I just give it by way of reference. Keep your finger there in Genesis 15. By way of reference, Philippians chapter 2 is the conversation through theology that Jesus, as God, had to humiliate himself to fit in a human body. It's called the humiliation of Christ. It's based on a Greek word called the kenosis, where, where God actually empties himself and fills a human body and willingly limits himself. This is the God who actually spoke and the entire universe was created, according to Colossians chapter 1. He's now going to fit himself into a human body and limit himself. Theologians call that the humiliations of Christ. Jesus was culturally lonely. Nothing about Rome agreeing with him at all, and his own Jewish brothers at that time, not at all. In Genesis chapter 15, we pick up the story of Abram, although he'll be called Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, by way of reference, same 15, but by way of reference, in Genesis chapter 12, Abram gets a call, and God says, you know what, Abram? This is your lucky day. This is a great day for you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Land, seed, and blessing. Go to the land that I will show you. He's living in approximately modern-day Iran. He's going to take a long walk through what we call the Fertile Crescent, and he's going to come to Lebanon and Syria. He's going to come down to what we call Israel proper. He'll have a journey into Egypt and back. Another story for another day. That's Abram. And God has promised him land, seed, and blessing. So Genesis chapter 13, his cousin Lot gets in trouble. And Genesis chapter 14, he has to rescue Lot. And then he meets a very interesting character by the name of Melchizedek. And now we come to chapter 15. And in those chapters that I very quickly referenced, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14, decades have gone by, not just years, decades have gone by. And there doesn't look like there's land. There doesn't look like there's seed. And there doesn't look like there's blessing. Chapter, verse 1 of chapter 15, here in the book of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, for I am. What's your Bible say there, church? Say it out loud. I'm your shield. I'm in 15 and verse 1. Your reward shall be very great. But verse 2, Abram's going to have some comments. So here's verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household shall be my heir. Abram is saying this. I wonder if you can relate to this, my friends. I wonder if you can relate. Where's my blessing? Oh, sure, I got a lot of money. At this point, he's a wealthy man. He has 300 people working for him. They're working for him and hanging out with them because he pays them. That's not family. Everybody knows that. So he's looking, he goes, I got 300 people working for me. So long as I'm the sugar daddy making the money and making all work and all of that, they're hanging with me. I don't pay them. They're not hanging with me. Where's my heir? 
Oh, and by the way, I'm in this like promised land and there's lots of other tribes. There's 300 of us. There's one that, that goes by the, you know, Hittites and the Jezebites and the other tribe of 7,000, 10,000, 5,000 here. They're mightier than me. It doesn't look to me, God, like this land is my land. It looks to me like it's their land and I better be humble. Can you relate to this? That's his journey. And so he's having this conversation with God. That's why I love this story. And he said, Does it, I don't look blessed. This doesn't look like the abundant life. And so the Lord now in verse 4 is going to say, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir, meaning his employee. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look to heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. You understand that. I want you to go outside, look out the heavens, look at the stars. Can you count the stars? Can you count them? Church, can you count the stars? No. So shall your descendants be. So the next phrase is very profound. For verse six says, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. Now that phrase you should underline because it is a dominant theme throughout the entire rest of the Bible. It goes to a doctrinal phrase called justification by faith. Abram has not worked for it. There's no works there. He just believed God and God would bring supernatural power to him. He would bring a promise to him. He would bring a seal of righteousness to him simply because he believed it by faith. And you have to understand it's by faith. <laughs> I have no heir. I've gotten pretty old. And really you think we're going to be as prosperous as this? I have no idea, God, how you're going to work this out. But if you say it so, then I believe it. Amen? And so this is Abram at this moment. The entire book of Romans, by the way, is based on that moment of verse 6, and he believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. And so in verse 7 now, we'll continue on. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. All of that Ur of Chaldeans, you can think, is basically Iran, kind of the border of Iran and Iraq. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, here's what I like about that. He just believed it, but he had a question for the Lord. That's totally okay. It's not a question by doubting. It's a question, okay, if you say you're going to do it, how are you going to do it, God? How is it going to come about? Because I don't understand these things. And so here's how the Lord's going to answer him in verse 9. He says, okay, bring to me. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these and cut them in half and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So what God is going to say is, I'm going to take a blood sacrifice. And I'm going to show you what a covenant means. Take these very large animals, cut them in half, be a butcher, make way for me because I'm coming now into this blood sacrifice and I'm going to create a covenant with you by which you will understand and know my promises that if I would deny myself and deny my word and deny my promises, I would cut myself in two. But I'm not going to have to do that because I'm going to be that true to you, Abraham. I'm going to fulfill that promise. Verse 12 now of the same chapter. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That is the prophetic utterance of when they're going to go down to Egypt and come out of Egypt years in advance. God is saying, here's how it's going to go down. You're not going to see all of my promises in your lifetime. You will get some, and they will be profound. But what I am giving to you is a promise that every man and every woman that could ever want is a dynamic legacy through all of history. Now, continuing on, verse 15. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. That's a great promise. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's all prophetic. So I want you to go to verse 17 real quick and look at this. So when the sun had gone down, again, this is all in the same day in the same moment, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. If you have another translation, maybe King James in particular, it's going to say it's an oven. Now, basically, if you study Hebrew and you get really into the grammar and you really get into the language and you say, what does a smoking pot mean? You know what it means by every single theologian? Do you know what it means? We don't know what it means. (laughs) All we know, if you think about an oven, an oven is kind of a box type figure where the fire is contained. If If you're with me, say yes. Okay, the fire is contained. All we know is somehow God's glory came and didn't wipe out Abram or anybody else. It was contained in a way that was really unique, that was sort of probably boxy like an oven, and that's the only way to understand it. And these animals that were butchered beforehand and in the middle, that flame and that flaming sword is going to go right down the middle. And God is going to say, if I ever... Do not keep my word to my people. You can do that to me. That's what that means. That's the beginning of what's called an Abrahamic covenant of land, seed, and blessing. And for us as a Christian, it's still an operation, which is why we have the authority to bring blessing on our own church, our own friends, and our own neighbors. That's why we can actually pray. And say, God, would you bless so-and-so? They're going through a hard time. They're struggling right now. They're down, these kind of things. Maybe they have health issues or other issues. Can you pray? Can you bring blessing? And God will hear that prayer because he says, I will not deny myself. You can tear me in two if I ever deny myself to my children. It affects even praying. And so... On verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kizanites, the Kedamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Rephim, the Amorites, Canaanites, and Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I mean, it's the oldest joke ever, and every pastor says, and the, and the mosquito bites, right? You know, it's just like one of those. This is actually from territory. It's actually from the Nile River in Egypt all the way north past Syria 
and encompasses the entire Middle East. He says, your descendants, because you believe me, because you believe my word, your descendants will be inheritors of that. And the guys who work for you, good that they get you know, work and good that they get paid, give them a raise and all of that. But from your own seed, from your own body, from you and your wife, I will be faithful in a way that no one will ever believe in that day. You will actually give birth to a promised child and that will give birth to this nation that I will create. And nobody will be perfect, by the way. I mean, you read the rest of Genesis, you just go, wow, nobody here is, like, they all need Jesus. <laughs> like, you know, but God is going to be gracious unto them, and he is going to work that out in the most powerful and fantastic way. And so this Abrahamic covenant is still in operation right now. So, so church, I'm asking you, you're going to feel culturally lonely. I don't know for how long. What I will tell you is Jesus' power, superpower will come upon you in all of those moments where you need victory over the things that are squeezing you. Because culture is coming to squeeze you. Inside of you will be something greater, something stronger, the Christ living. And if Jesus Christ, who did die on the cross and resurrected on the third day, that same resurrection power, according to the New Testament, is what abides and lives in us. And God invites us into a closer and closer relationship with him. The Bible calls that abiding. The idea of remaining close and tight with him. He invites us constantly. Have you sinned? Are you far away from Christ? And he invites you to come home. He says he'll forgive you. He'll turn his face towards you. He'll smile upon you. He'll wrap his arms around you. But culture, culture is another story. And there's only been a handful of moments throughout American history where there's been small pockets of time where maybe culture cooperated with the gospel, but for the most part, no. It's been on us to abide. It's been on us to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's been on us to trust God with his word and to seek him with all of our hearts and to fall on our faces before God. Jesus himself was lonely. Christians are sojourners, but they're also asked to be dominators. And so what I mean by that is you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you realize that we're actually asked to rule and subdue, to have a strong and fierce kind of mastery over planet Earth. And so this is our Father's world, and we should make it our Father's world. We should be caring for it environmentally. We should be caring for it economically. We should be concerned about those who do not have. We should be active and looking. We should be concerned. Every child is a child of God and we want to bring them home. Every person who does not have, we want to minister in some way. So we're also sojourners and we're also dominators. So I want to go to some some thoughts that I have for you to talk about. Okay, so, so this is true. There's this Abrahamic covenant. We have, we have cultural loneliness. We have these pressures that come upon us as we follow Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to give you a series of, of things that I want you to understand. I'm going to call them an inner wave and an outer wave. You go to the beach and some of you surf and some of you don't surf, but some of you get your toes wet. There's an inner wave. There's a series of inner waves, and then there's the outer banks of the outer waves. And so I want to talk about the inner wave. And the inner wave is what we do. And so we have four things that we, that we are about because of the gospel. And the first one is justice, and the second one is freedom, and the third is identity, and the fourth one's beauty. Don't worry, I'm going to repeat all of that. 
slowly. Let's talk about justice. So when I use the word justice, I use it biblically, and I need you to unplug from CNN and Fox News yelling at each other over what justice is. I need you to unplug from Google. I need you to like just unplug and get your face and your nose and your ears and your heart out of all of those channels and get them in the book. That's not going to help you. This is going to help you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that God himself is just and the justifier. A fascinating phrase. It means that God is so the creator God that he is actually the only one who has any power to judge. That is basically the teaching of Romans chapter 8. And he is that one who justifies. So he is, he's the only way that we know what justice is. Which is why when I kind of pick on like a Fox and a CNN, I pick on both of those, it's because those are like power encounters. And so, so whoever in our culture has the power, well, then they claim to be just, they're not. And so they just claim to have the power. And then that means that they're strong and somebody else is weak and taken advantage of. And then somebody else is strong and this other group is taken advantage of. God's not like that. He is just towards everyone. And he's the justifier. That's how we know our salvation. But we as a church need, and as Christians, need to be about a society and a world in which we actually ask God to make it just in his eyes. And we look to him to understand that dynamic. Second, by way of understanding, freedom. So the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know what the next sentence is in that verse? So do not be subject anymore to a yoke of slavery. So now we're on a farm, and we understand that in large animals training, there can be a yoke, which is a big collar on the neck, and it's attached from the older animal to the younger, and the older one that's wearing the yoke is taking the younger one around, showing how things are done. An easier way to understand that, if you don't get that, is basically if you have an old dog. And I have an old dog in the house now. And so if you have an old dog, what you generally want is get a, get a puppy because the old dog will show the puppy, here's what we do. If it's my house, I want that old dog to show the young dog, you do not make a mess in the house. You can say amen to that. You want that old dog to say, this is what we do things, right? Here's how we do things. Here's how we do things. And the young puppy, the young dog will actually understand it. That's the idea of that yoke, that collar over a large animal. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Do not be subject anymore to a yoke of slavery. Do not live against those things of Christ. So this inner wave that I'm talking about, what do we do to help in an environment of cultural loneliness is revolving around justice, revolving around freedom. And third, it revolves around identity. And identity is related to what we find in Ephesians chapter 2, which is that we are seated with Christ. So we are actually heirs with Christ and co-heirs with Christ and uh, other phraseologies are co-regions with Christ. Those are theologically correct ways of understanding it. But our identity, our identity is based in Jesus Christ. And we have a culture that's really wacky with this. And I'm not even going to give a lot of specifics because I know you know that. But we, our identity is in Christ. So I am first and foremost a Christian. I am first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm first and foremost somebody who's seeking God. And so are you. And we're doing this together. So our identity is sealed and seated in Christ. And the last is beauty. Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 61. 
Revelation chapter 2 by way of several examples. You probably most be familiar with the idea of Isaiah chapter 61, which is the idea of beauty from ashes. So our lives before God, sometimes we wreck ourselves. And so we have these ashes in our lives. We wonder what to do with them. We have guilt, we have shame, and we give that to God. And he takes these things which seem so broken, so many broken relationships and so many broken moments in our lives and so much failure or sin or setbacks, and God makes something beautiful out of it. The world will try and tell you it understands beauty. It does not. The world will try and tell us that what is loving, it does not understand what is loving. It does not understand reconciliation. It understands anger and hatred. The gospel, Christians, the church, understand justice and freedom and identity and beauty. This is our church. This is the culture. This is the world that we want to live in. And this is a world for us to say, you know what? I don't know what the world is doing out there. I know what we're doing in here. And we are about these things of justice and freedom and identity and beauty. That's the world. That's, that one of the things that God offers to you is a life worth living, a future worth pursuing. That is a future worth pursuing. Okay, so related to the outer wave. Related to this, that was the inner wave related to an outer wave. Well, one thing is that there's actually truth. So there is a place for us to critique culture. There is a place for that. And many people like stumble over that. What are you doing, pastor? Or what are Christians doing participating in the public square? You guys should run for every office known to man. You should be involved in school boards this and school boards that. You should, you, 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 if you have the gospel, you, if you have the righteousness of Christ, how is a public square going to understand any degree of morality unless you are speaking truth to it? Amen. Democracy will not necessarily bring about morality. Democracy is a, a form by which we can allow people who disagree with us to live at peace. But how are they supposed to know? The reason why we even appeal for Christian laws is because it's, it's best for non-believers, even if they don't know Christ, to know some of the boundaries of Christ. It's good for their lives. Amen. So in the outer way, there's truth. There's radical critique of culture. It, there's a place for us to say these things don't work. They're not natural. They violate God's laws. But then there's also love. There's also love. Related to love, and since it's Mother's Day, around the corner this way, as we talk about cultural loneliness, as we talk about these things. So some of you, my cowboy friends out there, like to give me cowboy history. So when I first got cowboy history, I said, no. I don't want to read cowboy history. I like, I like ancient history. I like ancient history. But some of you guys kept bugging me. Come on, Pastor. You wear cowboy boots, you got to read cowboy history. Like, all right, I'll work out. I'll, I'll get into it. So fascinating, I got into Dodge City. So Dodge City, basically like 20, 25 years after the Civil War. And so Dodge City is just a cesspool of humanity. It's terrible. It's terrible. And in Pittsburgh, there was actually a young couple about 20 years old. We don't know their names. We know very little history of them. There's only a couple sentences of them. But this is a young couple that had a burden for Dodge City. Now, how they got there, we don't know. But they made it as a young couple, brand new married. And they said, we're going to go bring Jesus to Dodge City. And how they got on a horse and buggy and a train and all of that. But they got to Dodge City, the far western part of the frontier. 
Well, when they got there, they had no place to live. There was no place to live. There was a major, massive housing crunch. They know nobody there. There's no going back. And the only people that would even talk to them were the girls above the bar that were prostitutes in the brothel. And so the wife goes to talk to those girls and she makes friends with them. And she says, okay, I'll make a deal with you guys. You guys make a deal with me. Here, I understand that all the ladies need help bathing and all the tubs and that kind of stuff. So I'll clean out all the tubs and help bathe the girls. I'll do your hair. I'll share my perfume with you. And I'll even sew your clothes because I'm good with that if you'll make a deal with me. And so the Madame says, okay, great. We'll make a deal with you. If you'll actually bathe our girls, if you'll actually do our hair, if you actually share your perfume and sew our clothes, here's the deal. We'll give you a room right down the, the, uh, the, the hallway way and we promise that none of the prostitutes and none of the girls will sleep with your husband. She goes, okay, we'll, we'll make that deal. <laughs> we'll make that deal, right? So, so here's the thing. Those girls, as that young evangelist and wife began to find out, were prostitutes, not prostitutes. They were all married. How'd they get there? Well, this is cattlemen and cattle drivings on horse. And so they had to go far off for six, nine, 12, 14 months, sometimes two years or so on their cattle drives far off in the wilderness to do their trade and come back. They were all good men who did the best they could to leave their wives with all kinds of money and all kinds of goods so that they could make it a year or two. But it didn't always go well. Sometimes there was inflation. Oftentimes there were thievery. And the town themselves, knowing that that men went away, would come and do bad things to those women that I just described. And they'd end up with children and they'd be literally homeless or penniless, absolutely destitute. And so they sold themselves into prostitution so their kids would eat. When the men would come back from their cattle drives, they'd found out what the, ten, what the town had done to them in some way. And that was not a good day because every single one of them got shot down and killed. And there'd be bodies in the street just laying out with all those cattlemen saying, don't do that to my woman anymore. If I come back again, it's going to happen. And so this was insert repeat one after another. And this young 20-year-old evangelist and wife come into that world. You know, know their names. All those prostitutes cleaned up the bar at night and went to women's Bible study. She started at Genesis. He made, he was incredible with ag. And so the husband, because the women were starving when the men would go out, he made an incredible farm so that all the children could be fed made sure that everyone had something to eat. And with the men that are around, they came to Bible study. They literally started church out in the mud. So actually, I was wondering, a tent like this, we're sort of in the legacy, somewhat of a dog city kind of place where they, they just sat outside and said, great, we'll love Jesus here. We'll learn the word. We'll worship. We'll sing some hymn songs. And we'll, 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 we'll do what Jesus asked us to do. Seven years later is what short history says. The entire town is baptized in Jesus' name. The jail is emptied out. It actually gets turned into like a schoolhouse. No more girls are prostituting at night. The town is taking care of all the women who have difficulties and are not taking advantage of them. It's only a few sentences in Dodge City's history like that. You can put it together when you read it. The Indians actually took favor with that young couple and said, we like how you roll. Would you come hang with us? We have a whole group of people that we'd like you to meet. 
And so that's the last you hear of this unnamed couple. They go with the Indians to evangelize them on the frontier. That's the gospel of the outer wave. There's a love language and culture. Obviously, I'm not going to do what I say right now because it'd be disingenuous, but there's a love language and culture right now. You know what the love language is? Will you cry with me? I mean, like, legitimately. See, all of us are, like, so Western that in, in terms of our, our, our understanding of emotions that we're not good criers. You know, so somebody, somebody dies... And, and we say, we mean well, we mean well, but we say, it'll be okay. If something bad happens and, you know, we, we get all nervous and it's because we don't understand that sometimes what is best is to actually grab your friend, your loved one, and to actually like break your heart open for them and to cry over all of their grief and all of their sadness. And that that is actually the most loving, humane thing to do, to have tears for people who have no tears or to have tears for people who don't think you have tears for them. I transferred my attitude as a pastor in my former church, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, when a brother of mine named Dave Brown said, come with me. And I went with him and I was just of such a bad attitude. I did not want to go with him. And we're going to go pray for this guy who's in bed as a tradesman and his back is out. He's had multiple surgeries. He's in tremendous pain. And he asked for me to sit outside the door. Now in Rick Soto's mentality, I'm thinking, we're going to pray for him. We're going to leave and have lunch, right, brother? I mean, right, we're just going to go like say yes. And then I'm going to leave because I'm hungry, man. And I, and I got a surfing thing later on in the day and I got to get my little workout in, right? And I got to get home on time. And so I I got, my, I got my stuff. Like, let's just pray and we're out of here. I watch a grown man trades, tradesman, Dave Brown. This brother's laid out in the bed and he crawls in bed with the guy. I'm thinking, no. Jesus will never ask this of me. No. He grabs his hand. You know, and he grabbed it like, like, like that. I'm like, oh God, Jesus, help me. I, could never, I don't know if I could ever do that. He grabs his hand. And my brother Dave Brown spends the next hour, hour and a half crying his eyes out for his friend who's all but paralyzed. And I, I sit in a corner and I know when Isaiah says, God, I am a man of unclean because I'm in a sacred moment of a man who is so bigger than I, so better than I, and I am just a puny little thing and I have to sit in a corner and go, I, 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 don't, I don't comprehend that kind of Jesus and I need to. God, help me, save me, minister to me. Because that brother who had the broken back got out of bed. We'd leave, and the next day, he found whatever needed, and he felt a healing that he needed. He just felt he found whatever needed, and he found a moment where he goes, I believe that God's going to get me out of this bed, and he got out of bed and went back to work. And we're not good at crying. 
We're not good at crying. And that couple that went to Dodge City, they were criers, worshipers, and prayers, and living it out. We're not good at crying. Where's my brother Phil Johnson? Where are you? Why don't you bring them over here as I kind of head for home? Let me explain a few things. The Bible says that God loves you. Everybody who believes that say yes. yes. God loves you and has a plan for your life. The Bible clearly communicates in John chapter 3, verse 16, that for so God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 10.10 10 says that there's an abundant life. Jesus says, hey, you ever heard about the devil? He wants to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came to give you life, life abundantly. The Bible goes on to talk about our problem, our humanity. It's so much like I try to describe just personally is that we have, we have our limitations. The Bible calls sin. Man is actually sinful. He has a sin nature deep inside. All of sin, the scripture says, and it falls short of the glory of God. Not just of God, but of the glory of God. Jesus Christ is that payment for your sin. You can't pay for your sin yourself. John chapter 1, verse 12 says that we all have by Christ, in Christ, the ability to be called son and daughters of God. It's an amazing promise. So Jesus makes something very interesting. He says, if you want to know me, here's, here's, this, here's the deal. Revelation talks about a series of doors. On the one hand, Jesus in chapter 3 is knocking, and he's knocking, and he says, let me in, and I will come in. It's a really fascinating word. It's, I'll come and have supper with you, which means have a meal. And if you think about having a meal with somebody, that's rather intimate. That's really personal. And so he's knocking, he's knocking, and he says, let me in, let me in, let me in. But then in Revelation chapter 4, he says, hey, why don't you come up here, and I'll show you what I'm doing. In other words, there's two doors. One is in Revelation chapter 3. Let me into your door, and, let me, and I will let you see what I'm doing. Revelation chapter 4 is an amazing chapter about the heavenly glories. Jesus Christ is knocking on the door of your life. And he's asking you to open the door, and he will actually come in. And I don't know what he needs to come in and do in your life, but he needs to come in and do it. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to agree with me in prayer. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray now that even at this moment, God, that you would come by supernatural power, Jesus, and minister to all of our hearts in the most special way. And I would pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.